Welcome to the Mechanical Inc. podcast, a collection of conversations about the open source ecosystem. We speak with maintainers and companies that play a key role in ensuring the health and sustainability of open source today and in the future. Hey, Chris. Uh, welcome to the Mechanical Inc. podcast. Okay. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I'm, I'm stoked that I, um, that I have you on this podcast. Um, I could hardly believe it's when you responded on LinkedIn and everything, and here we are. Um, but without going too much into that, uh, I'm going to hand the mic over to you and let you introduce yourself, your background, how you came to do what you do. We'll get you up in the morning, and then if you could tell us a little bit about Fractured Veil. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, I'll, I'll keep the introduction tight. I mean, um, so uh, started using Linux with Slackware in 95. I want to say 95, 96, and um, it's been wonderful since then. So uh, I got involved with my local users group uh, in California when I moved to California in 96, 97. Um, and uh, that turned into a job at a company called VA Linux. At that time, it was VA Research. It was a place that shipped Linux hardware. Uh, and before that, did some Verilog. And... Um, they are like, hey, do you want to do, uh, you know, do you want free software to be your, your life? Do you want to be full time? I'm like, yeah, are you kidding? That sounds great. I was uh, consulting for The Gap at the time, uh, you know, just doing some consulting literally around the year 2000 problem. And um, and it was it was fun. It, but, you know, the idea that I could have a job working on Linux and working on free software all day. Phew, Sign me up. So we created this, uh, we called it the community uh, marketing group or something. I don't know. And uh, I booked some ads for the company and, and did some other stuff. But I'm, my, my job was to interact with the open source community uh, and hire a bunch of them, like kernel developers and device developers, that kind of thing. And we did that. And then we, uh, I took over support. It, it was one of those. It was one of those jobs where he's like, "Chris, um, go run this thing until we find a professional." I'm like, "Sounds great," you know. So I would. I ran. I ran marketing. I, I booked the worst possible ads on Linux Journal uh, that that have ever been. Seen. They're beautiful. The photography was just like you know, it was like Annie Leibovitz level quality photography of machines that were going out of production in a week. You know, it's like just all these <laughs> fundamental errors and problems. And uh, you know, every font, not not one font, not one brand, every brand, every font. So I wasn't great at it, but I was good enough until we got a professional in. And then, um, and then I took over support and I I reformed support and and a bunch of other aspects of the business and it was super fun and then we went public and um then we bought andover which was the owner of slashdot and i had known the slashdot guys from before i had helped them actually sell to andover and then um yeah i was there for about four years it was great you know i worked on slashdot for a couple of years and then left and did a game company <laughs> uh which didn't go very well um and then uh started consulting again and then went to Google and hired my co-founder of the game company at Google. And then, you know, worked at Google, released Android, Chrome, all this other stuff. And it was super. It was a great job. Uh, I was there until uh, for a while. And then about 2015, the co-founder of the game company, who was also working at Google at the time, um, he's like, Chris, we got to do a game, man. Let's just do a game. Come on. Let's do a game. I was like, yeah. All 
right, fine, let's do another game, you know, because we love games. We love the storytelling and, and the back end programming and all the rest. And I was like, but this time we're going to do it right, you know. So I got a release from our general counsel at Google to do it separate from the company. And so uh, we started working on it about a long time ago. And we brought in a Canadian contracting company. Um, and that, that person, Ryan, uh, is now kind of like the, the third founder of, uh, of the game company. It's, uh, the game company is called Paddle Creek Games. Uh, the game is Fractured Veil. Vale. It's set 100 years in the future on Maui. It's a multiplayer game. You know, we, we think we're going to get to about two to 300 people per server. Um, and then it's, it's a parallel world model where you can go between worlds and yeah, every world is just slightly different. Maybe things are spelled differently, but it's, it's really fun. And it's a, it's a survival game. You're trying to, you know, thrive in this environment with mutants going around trying to kill you and eat you and all that. And it's, uh, and the building system's super fun, you know? So that's been, that's been a, that's been a welcome distraction because the reality of working in a, in a very large company like Google is, you know, you don't really exercise the creative muscle that much. You know, literally the creative muscle of writing backstory and 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 all the rest. So it was it was really it was a great source of happiness. You know. Anyway, so I was at Google and and doing really good work, and then I was laid off, kicked, booted. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so so you know, um, we got word. I was, it was January sixteenth that we were being uh, you know that I was affected by the layoff. I'm like okay. Um, and so I started a, uh, a company to hold consulting that I'm going to be doing. It's called Halogenica. And can I tell you that why I called it that? Cause yeah, please do. You know, I, I don't know how many listeners care about stuff like this, but so uh, the periodic table of the elements. Okay. There's this, uh, they're called the halogens, right? And they're, um, they're <clears throat> almost, I think all of them, uh, their outer valence shell has seven uh, electrons. So it's got a hole for one. Uh, so it bonds with other things and creates exciting things. So for instance, uh, salt is chlorine and sodium, right? So it's chlorine is the halogen and then, you know, it makes salt. And it's actually why they're called halogens, haline, you know, it's salt. And so they're mm -hmm. called the salts, right? And an open source is basically a halogen, right? It's when you, when you bring it in and you combine it, you make new things from it, you, you get remarkable outcomes, right? And, and yeah, the thing yeah. is, you know, fluorine, you know, is one of those chemicals. You're like, mm, chlorine, you know, you can make mustard gas or you can make salt. You know, it's like fluorine, you can make uh, Teflon or you can have, you know, forever chemicals in your water. You know, it's like, so careful introduction and use of open source and 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 creating developer platforms and ecosystems it's kind of what i do so i was like and, I, and I, i'm a i'm a science nerd so i i chose a sciencey name for my consulting mm -hmm. company so i've been setting that up i got this office that i set up here um not far from my house i found some industrial space and so this is the the quiet room and the other room is where mm -hmm. my cnc machines and 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 3d printers and stuff are and doing some product development there so yeah so that's uh that's what's going on this is the wow the new place for me so yeah that sounds very exciting i love that so name. It, it's a very long long roundabout introduction so you know i love it love it um so yeah uh 
I didn't want to touch too much on the whole Google layout thing. Yeah, but you yeah. Can do whatever you want, man. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. Was, I mean, I don't... Google is a great place to work, but it is a place I just used to work. I mean, it's not yeah, like not for sure. family. You know. Yeah, I know. Yeah, there was a lot of conversation about that specific aspect where um, yeah. a lot of these things surprising. are sold. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, for sure. And I mean, yeah. I, yeah, I, I saw a lot of messages around Mastodon and stuff like that when that happened. People were like, "What the heck are they thinking?" And mm. yeah, um, I, it's funny. Yeah. I'm on a Twitter sabbatical. You know, right about October. Mm -hmm. Like, you know what? I'm not sure I even like being on Twitter. You know, and so yeah. everyone's like, oh, go to Mastodon. I'm like, you know, I don't know that I want to recreate Twitter because I'm not sure I mm. really even liked it all that much. Yeah. So uh, so I'm sure. on a, like a six month break, you know, yeah. from from Twitter Mastodon world. So 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 I didn't see it is, is what I'm saying. It's very common, yeah, yeah, yeah. kind of people to, to bring that up, though, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it's a good choice to stay off these things for a bit. Uh, <laughs> Well, yeah. it's funny because you mentioned LinkedIn and you're surprised. And I was like, honestly, I would have been surprised too. It's like I I uh, I, I ended up I was, it was it was like last year um, when I when I entered my Twitter sabbatical, I uh, I I was like, you know what, my LinkedIn is is kind of crusty and old, right? So I'm gonna go, I'm gonna update that and clean it up a little bit and. And not because I knew I was getting laid off, um, but, you know, I was just like, yeah, you know, I should, I should make these other things a little nicer, you know? So I went through and I cleaned it all up and everyone's like, Hey, are you looking for a job? And I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm just, you know, they're like, are you still, are you still at Google? Did you leave Google? I'm like, no, no, I didn't leave Google. Don't, that's silly. And then, um, and then Google lays me out. <laughs> so I, I had a post up saying, I'm really sorry about all the churn. I was just cleaning up my profile. And then people were replying to that post when I was like, <laughs> Oh, this is a hassle. Um, but yeah, so I used LinkedIn so much after I was laid off because so many people were paying me and emailing me and messaging me and, you know, wanting to connect and all that. And, um, and I, and I wanted to send messages to my former colleagues saying it was great working with you, da, 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 you know, so, so I was, I was on it a lot. And then I got a, uh, an email from LinkedIn saying, due to unusual activity, you've been locked out of your account. <laughs> I'm oh like, my oh, goodness. unusual activity. I agree. That is very unusual. So, um, so <laughs> they restored almost immediately, but I was like, that's really funny. You know? Yeah. I haven't used LinkedIn. Why would I have used LinkedIn for, you know, like I, I, I was, this is, this is really funny. I actually was going through LinkedIn and this is after the unusual activity or whatever. I'm like, Oh, I'll go through, I'll, I'll clear out all the old invites all the old connection requests all the old messages because it turns out there's two messaging systems inside linkedin one is from your connections and one is just other and i'm like oh what yeah, is yeah. This? And so i was going through it now it was people asking me to speak or to sponsor something and i'm like i don't worry google anymore i'm playing oh well i'm sorry i won't make it. and i realized i was and like job offers from like and I found out I got this job offer, and I was like, "That's weird. I I didn't think they were even in that country anymore." And and I I replied, "I'm like, no, no, I'm sorry, I'm not looking to do this kind of work." And I realized I was replying to a message from 2016. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I just I got to get off this thing. <laughs> you know? I'm like, I don't care. I, you know, all right, so yeah, but uh, yeah, so I I saw your message, and I was like, yeah, I'd like to, but I you know I have to wait until I'm officially not an employee or something. And, yeah. yeah. So here we are. So yeah. Okay. All right. Well, cool. Well, um, 
to touch on the the Google work, but um, mm -hmm. yeah, just like you're overseeing the use and release of open source software, and the mm -hmm. work had a broad mandate that said to ensure the health of the open source developer community. That's right. So, and I would love to hear your thoughts just on what you would consider a healthy open source community, and like how can we all contribute to making this actual sustainable reality? Yeah, sure. Um, so, when I started at Google. Um, one of the things that um, we kicked off pretty early was the Summer of Code. And the reason I kicked off the Summer of Code was because I was going to these conferences, the Linux cons, the OSCONs, that whole thing. And I was getting kind of tired of seeing all the same people. Very nice people. But I'm like, you know, we're not getting younger. I mean, I'm significantly grayer than when I started. And, um, you know not having new people come into open source is really bad, okay? Because the software that we're all depending on needs people looking after it. Otherwise, we have to stop depending on it. And literally as a functioning society, um, we need to look after these comments, right? And so... Um, so when I say I, I'm, I was tasked with looking over the after the health of the larger open source community of developers, I really see that as finding new people who want to take part, getting them introduced, uh, involved with the open source software development world, processes, projects, whatever, and and for those projects that are out there healthy fine, whatever, make sure they have what they need to thrive when they come under, frankly, attack or when they, um, when they just need a helping hand, you know? So I tried to mm. be that and I tried to be that via Google. Right. And so, and that, 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 that was pretty good. That was pretty healthy, I think, um, because it's one thing to be the world's largest user of open source software, or the world's largest producer of open source software, both of which Google, Google was, you know, by a large margin. Um, yeah. And, you know, but we are depending on it for our platforms and as the foundational technology of a lot of what we were doing. So it was in our interest, selfishly speaking, to ensure those foundations were healthy, right? As opposed to just using it and, mm, that's good. It's enough, you know, and, and it's okay for smaller companies and other companies to just be users. It's fine. But I always felt that for Google to be a leader in computer science and in the computer industry, we had to be part of that foundation. That's why when we release things like Dart or Go or, you know, Kubernetes later and, you know, uh, TensorFlow, it's like it was about us being in the right space for the computer, for computer science. Because otherwise, here's the thing about being in a very large company like Google, you know, you're either part of the foundation or you're riding on its coattails. And hmm. that means that you don't always know where you're going and you don't control your destiny. The great thing about open source, you can control your destiny, but it means you have to be involved. Otherwise, you're going to be surprised by hmm. your destiny. You know, so. Hmm. Hmm. so you can either be involved. Uh, or not. And if you're not involved, if you're not part of the solution, you 
get to not complain too much when things go away that maybe you're not looking for them to go. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, that's a rambling way of saying, I think it's important that it's not about giving back. It's not about generosity. It's, it's about having the right respectful relationship with the things that matter. You know? Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. So it's about the right mindset, essentially. Um, yeah. The right I approach. Mean, these, are, these are not our, we're not subservient. You, know, you and I are not subservient to the open source that we use. Mm-hmm. We're also not superior, right? We yeah. have to be part of it. Otherwise, you know, it's okay to just be a user, right? But don't assume more privilege than maybe you have. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you see this a lot sure. where people are like, I can't believe they're not doing X or Y or Z with this open source project. And I'm like, oh, yeah. you can do it. No, I can't. That's ridiculous. And it's like, well, okay, then maybe, uh, you know, maybe you don't know what you're talking about. And it's like, <laughs> people like, they get, they get upset with me when I say this too, because it's like, oh, that sounds like just patches welcome. And I'm like, well, sometimes it is, you know? And it's like, I've had so many discussions with both executives at Google, outside of Google, all over the world. And I'm like, you know, if you have a better way to go at this project, take it, go, fork, show us, show us you're wrong. And then we'll rebaseline on you. You know, this happens all the time. Yeah. Going back to, you know, so you might remember uh, early Linux kernels, there was the, uh, the, they weren't sure where they wanted to go with their memory management, right? So they had a bunch of competing forks, basically. There was the Andrew Morton uh, memory management fork. There was like four different, basically, kernels, right? This is before oh. they got really subtle about handling <laughs> forks, by the way, <laughs> before Git. This was before BigKeeper, Big that whole thing. Um, so they literally just like let the chips fall where they may, and then they picked one and then it, and, and that was okay. You know, that was a great model. You let people experiment in different ways and then you revert to them, whichever one is working out. So yeah, I would go to people and they'd be like, Oh, I can't believe they're doing this. And I'm like, then do it your own way. And they're like, mm-hmm. what, what do you mean? What, won't we offend them? And I'm like, it's open source. And this is the point. You know, you should be able to experiment and find out new ways. And if you're better, great. Then people will just adopt that. You know, it's like, yes, sometimes there's egos. And yes, sometimes there's there's always that stuff. But long and short of it is, you know, I, this, is, this is exactly what happened with weight clocks, right? So uh, back, it was like 2010, 2009. So we shipped Android on the original HTC G1 Dream, right? And to ship a phone that was going to last a day, right? You know, we had to change how the kernel managed the the the, the CPU uh, because mm-hmm. if it was running full bore all the time, um, we also couldn't go all the way to sleep, right? So we needed to find a way of ratcheting back the consumption of the devices. And the applications, right? Because an application shouldn't be able to wake up and make the radio go full bore, for instance, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so we came up with a system where, you know, basically the uh, Android's, you know, management system for the battery, for the radio, for all the rest, they could talk to the kernel and say, okay, kernel, go a little bit to sleep, go a lot to sleep, go, you're, you're dead now you know, whatever it might be, right? And so it was basically an, a new interface into the Linux kernel, which Linus and a lot of people do not like new interfaces because they have to support them forever, which I get. 
And so we're like, that's cool. You know, we'll just maintain it in the arm and our fork with the arm kernel and all the rest. And a lot of the arm maintainers were really upset. They were like, I can't believe you're doing this. You're creating a new interface into the kernel that we can't abide by. And I was like, okay, it's fine. You know, we'll just keep doing it, you know, and you can take the patches or not. They're like, well, the problem is, you know, uh, all the device makers are now writing to that interface because, you know, Android's got so many handsets out there. And it's like, well, yeah, yeah, that's right. So either, frankly, take our patch or be okay with having to lose device support. And that was kind of, it wasn't a very popular thing to say at the time. Yeah, I was like, sure, well, yeah. I mean... And, and, and I, I was at the embedded Linux conference and someone was really upset. They were like, you know, this wake locks thing, it's, it's destroying what we're trying to do. Da, da, da. And I was like, listen, I, I mean, I hate to put it this way, but we're going to probably be in an argument for about two years. And then we're going to probably change something very small. And then you'll accept it under a different name because this is the direction that we're taking Linux on mobile and mm, mm. so let's find a middle path for both of us or i mean because right now every device maker is porting to this stand and and i gave yeah. and this is this is early in github's uh, history and they had some shirts that said fork yourself right so, you know and um so i bought a shirt for everyone in the audience and I had him passed out. It was like, it's nothing personal. It's just how sometimes how we find a way forward with software. And then we all remain line and it's a pain in the ass, but it's how we find our way when we're not sure what the right way is. Yeah. So I don't know why I'm talking about this story, but yeah, it was, no. it was a fun time, you know? Yeah. And, and, some, and a lot of those people are actually my, our, our, our friends now, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's great when that happens. <laughs> Very upset. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I get it. You know, so, and we're very passionate people. We're software developers you know, mm. and we're working in the open. And so when somebody wants yeah. to take your software in a different direction, those bastards, you know, it's like, yeah, I get it. We, we all get tribal all the time. But mm -hmm. the yeah. great thing about open source is we're, we're, we, we get to be tribal together. You know, we get to fight together, you know, as opposed yeah. to, yeah. you know, from behind like some smoke filled room and some company. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, so this next topic is going to start off sounding a bit I'm like a, a long day. No, no, it's great. I love it. I love it. Um, this next one is 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 going to sound a bit like a pitch, but it, I promise it's not. Um, oh, please it's, complain. I mean, I don't work at Google. Are <laughs> you complaining about Google? I don't know. No, it's 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 nothing. <laughs> it's nothing complaining about Google. This is so. Um, there's quite a lot of projects and initiatives like Open Collective, GitHub sponsors, yeah, GitHub Accelerator, yeah, sure. Google Summer of Code. Tidelift, yeah, I think Tidelift, yeah, Season of Darks, Bloomberg's Lost Contributor Fund, and you know, there's a bunch of them, and they're all trying to find a way to onboard contributors to open source, but also trying to find a way to make being a full-time open source creator an actual option for people. Yeah. And mm -hmm. now, it's very exciting all of that stuff, but um, in Africa and other developing continents and nations, mm -hmm. open source can be instrumental, like in creating opportunities for people uh, to gain experience uh, with a whole bunch of skills. You know, it's not just development. It's also just working with other people, like you just said, working in a tribe and sometimes clashing and figuring it out and finding a way forward. But I've 
asked around a little bit and I've read some stuff and like one of the things that that prevents these folks or why there is such a low percentage of contributions coming from for example Africa is because for these folks free time is a luxury and you know when the time they have they spend on putting food on the table so for them to get involved in open source they need to either not sleep which is a really bad idea or they need to find a way to get paid to do it and like i said some of these projects and the initiatives i mentioned like is trying to do that but i've also played with this idea in my head of like an incubator that maybe is very very focused like on web developers for example that brings a set into a or like a non-profit maybe and then they get skills they get actual education um taught to be web developers and the way they express their skills is by contributing to open source but also they get paid a market related junior developer salary mm-hmm. and they do that maybe for 6 months and then they can choose to make open source a full time job if they found a niche where they can do that or they have all this experience now they have all this work in the open and so they are probably in a pretty good position to find a job if that is what they want to do. So this is I'm just curious on your thoughts on this whole idea. Well, so um, whenever there's an underserved region, let's just say, uh, for open source, uh, there are a couple things that people have tried. Some have worked, some haven't, right? You know, and, the, and there are still some regions that are very separate. Like Japanese open source tends to be pretty separate from the the you know europe uh and american and even uh you know chinese and korean open source communities um and and there are other nations where you're like wow they they, they shouldn't there be more of them you know like like chinese developers is a great example it's like shouldn't do you know that almost every piece of fundamental technology at tencent haiku all the rest are all written in go like wow. they're one of the biggest Kubernetes users on the planet at Tencent and Alibaba. It's like, and like, you don't see a lot of them. And is it just, is it a, is it a societal thing, a cultural thing? Like, cause like the Japanese developers, you don't see as many of them as you might think, you know, given their, their prominence uh, and their use of open source in their countries. Um, so, so there's that problem, but that's not really what you're asking about. So when you look at a, uh, a region that is underserved um, by, the economies of the globe. Um, when you go to the poorer countries, when you go to the places that have been historically separate from modern commerce, right? You know, you you see, uh, for, for instance, in, in Sri Lanka, um, there was uh, a group there, WSO2, um, and it's a uh, it was attached to Apache, right? And um, they were very early adopters of the Summer of Code. And they basically worked like what you're saying. They, they were basically a web development shop. And they had developed this open source library. Um, and that became sort of fundamental to who they were. They would do consulting around it. They would do services in and outside of Sri Lanka around WSO2. And so they were kind of like the SO2 company. Right. And it, and it really looks a lot like if you if it was a modern company, they'd probably look like one of these ones who are taking Node.js and turning it into a business. Right. Uh, or some Node.js framework. And turn it into a business. So 
So it can be done, right? You basically, you have somebody who's really enthusiastic about developing in their country, upskilling their students. And then there's just this pipeline that comes from the local university to these local concerns, serving largely local needs for a while until their software is, is seen by the larger open source world and larger commercial world as being really interesting and viable. So, so, so the model works. It's just really tough because all software development mm. turns out to be really tough to spin up and start up like yeah. that. Right. So um, in Nigeria, you've seen Samson Gotti try to spin up a number of things along this line, conferences, enthusiasts, communities, and the rest. And that's, uh, I think, I think he's going to be pretty successful at that. Um, in uh, Senegal, there were a couple of companies around rural electrification that were also trying to engage people into becoming software developers. And there's a number of places like what you're saying uh, with government support to try to upskill local workers so that their own local capacities can be increased. You see this in the Middle East a lot, too. I mean, they have oil wealth, so it's it's a very different picture. But they're mm -hmm. like, no, 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 we really want to upskill our citizens um, and have them not leave our country uh, so yeah, that yeah. they can be productive here. Um mm -hmm. Malaysia, there was a really weird thing in Malaysia. I, I spoke at a Malaysia conference, and um, and you know, this must have been 2010. I mean, this was a long time ago. But I remember I, it was the most unusual conference I had ever spoken at to date because you know, I speak at open source conferences all the time at the time. And it was the first one where there were more women than men. And I was like, this is amazing. What you, what's your secret, Malaysia? Right. So yeah, I was yeah. talking with uh, one of the uh, one of the organizers, uh, a woman there in Malaysia, and I was like, "So I gotta tell you, I'm so impressed. <laughs> and I've never seen so many women. This is great." And she's like, "Well, you know why, right?" And I'm like, "No." And she's like, "Well, so women don't have a lot of rights here. So like the, the oil remittances, uh, they 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 don't go to women. They go to men." Um, and, um, the long and short of it was, um, the way she put it was, uh, basically this is sexism lapping itself in this, in this profession because men don't want to do it. Women want to do it. Women can get good jobs that are secure by doing mm -hmm. it. And mm -hmm. it's one of the ways that they can make reliable money for themselves when their foundational support is not there because mm -hmm. women weren't treated so well. I'm, I'm sure it's better now. I, I'm, I'm trying to make any accusations towards Malaysia, but it was yeah. like, I was like, I'm like, so the reason there's so many women is because this is a, a profession that women can do without interference. And she's like, yeah, basically. <laughs> so, so anyway, um, so, so every country though has its equation you know, of how you get people into software development, how you get them into higher skilled jobs uh, like this. And, and getting them there is really tough. Now, what you're proposing isn't impossible, though. So a lot of governments actually really like this sort of thing. Uh, and, and actually multinational um, organizations, um, they really want people who want to help upskill 
uh, countries and that sort mm-hmm. of thing. I, I've talked to a ton of countries and they're just like, how do I have a Silicon Valley here in my country? And I go, you, you know, basically have no culture and, and, a, and a good university and you'll be fine. But, um, <laughs> sorry, it's mean about my former home. Um, but like, you know, what they're really asking is how do we build a domestic capacity for software and hardware development? And, and that's something I'm, I'm, I'm always talking to people about that. It's like, and it's really tough because, you know, there's certain instabilities that uh, really affect more than you might think, like power instability, um, you know, uh, national censorship movements have been really challenging because it turns out, you know, they're not just censoring the thing they want to censor. They end up censoring a lot of things. And so it's like, okay. um, You know, it's, it's funny because there's been so many discussions about blocking China from getting to GitHub, blocking China from getting their hands on various technologies, software and hardware. There's the ITAR rules in the United States, which tells you which countries you absolutely cannot send a byte of data to. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, um, and, and there's a lot of national regimes where like you can never show this symbol. You can never mention this group. You can never mention this. and they get wrapped up sort of together, you know? Um, it's like there were a lot of researchers in China. Uh, I, I, I go in science circles a lot. And they're like, yeah, I got to tell you, you know, it's, it's pretty bad when we can't get to a scientific paper that's hosted yeah. on a Western server. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, we still get to it. It's just, it's so hard sometimes. Yeah. I'm like, yeah. yeah. And we're not talking about weapons research and that kind of thing. It's like, you know, um, I'm all over the place. I'm sorry, Shaw. <laughs> you know? No, no, no. Oh. It's uh, it's really challenging, and so, but it, but in some countries they have real problems getting anything but a phone signal. So you're like, okay, well, what can we do over a phone, over a over a three G network or a four G network, right? Yeah. And it's like, yeah. oh, okay, you know, but a lot of like uh, the content on YouTube isn't great because it's really costly to get to them, right? So how mm. do you get a D rated YouTube or this podcast, do you, you know, when somebody, how do, how do people get this podcast? I noticed you're on a, a pile of the network. So is there a low bandwidth version of this where I maybe sound a little worse, but who cares, man, <laughs> I don't know if you can get that. That's a good point. That's a very yeah. good point. Yeah, I'm not yeah. trying to put it on you. That's not. No, 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 no. But it, it's good to think about these things. I mean, that didn't occur to me. Like you think, well, there's a transcript, but you know, you don't necessarily want to read it uh, an hour-long podcast or something. You might just want to do it while you're. Well, I mean, the nice thing about your day job. more information dense than me going on and on and on. Skim <laughs> past all my nonsense and get to the meat of things, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a hard problem to solve, but. Yeah, it's good to hear that there are initiatives that have tried this and some have been various degrees of success with it. Yeah. Um, I mean, it does mean that there there is hope to here to, to do so, this. Can I tell you the negative side of this? Is there yeah, always do. that person who wants to stand up a training regime just so they can collect the money from the government and not actually train people and teach people? Yeah. And mm-hmm. and and there's a there's an old saying of sorts in the UN that if you go into a corrupt despotic regime uh, and you want to help people there, you're probably going to be helping some corrupt despots in the process. 
<laughs> and it's like, yeah. okay, you know, just accept a little bit of that. And so can we overall train people up, bring them up on this technology, have them be useful in a domestic capacity? Yeah, I think that that's totally possible. And yeah, there's going to be some leakage. Okay, sure. Mm -hmm. Who cares? Mm -hmm. You know, as long as you actually do better for folks, that's kind of a great thing. You know, it, it, one of our earliest summer of codes, someone emailed us and they were really upset. I was like, well, what's wrong? Because we were giving, I think at the time, like five grand a student. Uh, and this was in Mauritius. And they're like, it's really important that my name is never exposed as mm -hmm. winning this award. And I'm like, oh gosh, how come? And they're like, if you have $5,000 in this country, you're a target. I'm like, wow. You know, they, they still wanted the money for sure. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but they were like, it, it's really important that my name's not on the website. You know, it's not trackable back to me. I'm like, oh, that's cool. We can figure this out. And we, we, we did. But it was like, yeah, like the way money moves in some places is pretty, pretty interesting. Mm hmm. Yeah, wow. I don't know what's about that either. Yeah, That's no, great. no, no. I'm not it's... working for Google. I, I can just say whatever I want. <laughs> <laughs> so um, related to open source, but a little bit different. Uh, it's a project I read about, um, and I looked at your website. Uh, it You called it all... All for good jobs. Yeah. Um, when I take the link, it, it's I think it's maybe rebranded as points of light engage. Yeah. So what um, happened? Yeah. yeah sorry, sorry. Go ahead. What's your actual question? No, 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 no. Uh, let's put a pin in that because I do want to know what happened. Um, but essentially, from what I understand, it's like a place where you can find volunteer opportunities mm -hmm. all over the world, and like nonprofits can do stuff like event signups and manage these things like so yeah how did this come about and like what happens <laughs> uh, points of light is actually uh, it's from george herbert walker bush's and i think reagan's one of their talking points was uh, uh, america is like a, a shining castle on the hill that people should aspire to or something and a thousand points of light should be seen from space when you look at them you know america and not like north korea which is just a big black spot and you know and i i'm actually not sure about the 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 source material but it did come from their 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 regime so, so points of light existed and when obama won the uh the white house um they're like we need a volunteer linking website and people are like well why don't you just use points of light well we can't use points of light you know so we need one that's you know from 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 the democratic side from the the lefty side and it's like oh, okay you know and so there were a number of Googlers who ended up inside the Obama White House. And so they then went back to Google and said, hey, you know what, Google, you promised <laughs> that you would write this thing for the, for the administration. And, um, and they're like, but you promised the administration you would do that. But now you're the administration and you want us to. Anyway, um, they're like, just, just have Chris do it. He can handle it. He he gets involved in all kinds of weird things. Have Chris do it. I'm like, yeah, all right. So I, I mean, my, myself and uh, uh, the, the person who, who had done the, the apartment map hack thing on top of Craigslist using mm. the Google Maps API before it was an API, uh, Paul Rademacher and Adam Saw and uh, a couple of other folks, 
we all just like, oh, okay, well, we can do this. Well, let's just make a website. We put it on App Engine at the time. App Engine had come out. And um, and so we developed this thing. Now, I, I had worked for the U.S. government before, uh, for the State Department when I was younger. I was an intern during college. And I was like, you know, writing software for the government's a little different than writing for the private sector. You all know that, right? And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. You know, so I, I'm the open source guy. So I'm like, so we're going to open source it. That's going to take care of a lot of problems with intellectual property and copyright and the government, all the rest. So that's the first thing. So that's good. And we're, we're starting off in the right place. Um, but like, you know, we had to move the, the website and the uh, ownership of that software into a nonprofit, which we created. And then the nonprofit had all these board members um, that were acceptable uh, to the administration and to the uh, the political scene at the time. We had um, Arianna Huffington on the board. We had um, someone from Comcast. Basically, like hmm. half of them were lobbyists, half of them were Arianna Huffington types, and it was the most useless board ever. You know, like, like I'd just go and I'd give a report, and then I'd turn around and keep shipping the software right and i ha we had to get it cleared by the office of the inspector general for the white house and that was fine you know and, and everyone's like oh aren't you scared I'm like why no this is this is easy believe me you know and they're like but 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 and i'm like no let's just let's just ship software we'll be fine you know anyway so we created this thing we created uh, and it was funny because jonathan greenblatt was uh, uh on the board and he was great and he's now in charge of the Anti-Defamation League. Um, and so Jonathan and I, we uh, launched this thing and it worked really well. You know, it matched up. Uh, it was mostly domestic at the time. Um, we we linked up uh, domestic volunteering activities. It was actually a really big push in the Obama administration. Uh, they, they had uh, like the, the AmeriCorps or something like that. Um, and this is when Code for America popped up. This is when a lot of the, the Gov 2.0 stuff popped up. And so okay. it was actually really, it was very rewarding to write and, and, and deploy. And so the nonprofit operated, I want to say for two or three years. And they're like, you know, why don't we just roll it into the first application <laughs> once the Obama administration, you know, um, when they were wrapping up, they're like, hey, uh, you know, at this point, I wasn't attached to the project anymore. And so they just rolled it into the Points of Light Foundation. And then I think that's when, uh, yeah, and it was it was good, you know. So it was a, it was a hell of a ride, though. It was super fun, mm -hmm. um, you know. And, you know, yeah, I met a, I made some good friends, you know. It was a good yeah. time. Yeah, good Sounds like you're right. Great project. Was, was a, yeah, the thing is about Google. This was one of the great things about working there. Is if if you were just you know willing to duck and weave and and just take on some really fun projects, you could do some fun stuff. You know, so yeah, yeah, Place sure. I used to work. yeah. So um, cycling back to open source, uh, mm -hmm. you wrote two books for O'Reilly Media um, yes. called Open Sources and Open Sources Two. And so the first one had the subtitle Voices from the Revolution and the second one, The Continuing Evolution. Mm -hmm. So if you could talk a little bit about, about the books, like uh, how are they different and similar? And then what I'm really curious <laughs> and what I'm really curious about is what did you learn from the conversations with these like leaders in open source? And like what has changed since then? Because that's quite a while back. And then yeah. what is still the same, either good or bad? 
Well, it's funny, you know, uh, the first one, um, it was, uh, I, I actually started it before I got to VA Linux. Um, I had met Tim, oh, gosh, Nat Torkington was at O'Reilly at the time, um, and, and a bunch of really great people. Anyway, um, and, and Tim was like, you should write a book about open sources. I'm like, you actually don't want me to write a book. We, we want to get these people. Uh, so Mark Stone was the editor and the co-author of both the books. Um, what we really want is we want to get their voices. Uh, we want to get their, their thinking on the page. Uh, and they're like, wait, you want to get Bruce Perrins and Eric Raymond and Richard Stallman to write for the same thing? Like, you know, they don't get along. And I'm like, I know, I know, but uh, we'll, we'll, we'll pull it off. Right. And so, and then we had uh, Rob McCool, we had uh, Mitchell Baker, we had all these people, a lot of a lot of whom are still attached to open source projects in one form or another. And um, and we basically wanted to hear their thoughts, right? And so they obviously they talked about their projects, their hobby horses, whatever it might be, uh, Mozilla and that kind of thing. Um, but it was it was super fun. It was, it was a document in time, though. Right. And that was kind of how it was designed. And so the work that Mark and I did was, you know, harassing the authors and getting them to write their things or frankly, ghostwriting some of them, which I had to do. But it was fine, you know. And um, <laughs> and then uh, and, and have it not be a fan book, you know, although some people mm -hmm. around and have every author sign there sign you know it became an autograph book for some people they would go around oh my favorite open source people can you sign this you know right there okay cool you know and, and then you know richard would it be like, oh sure i'll sign oh i'm not gonna sign next to bruce parents so, yeah like, oh, let's get along for a minute you know these people are really enthusiastic they're they're fans let them be fans you know so I want to. I'm bringing up a topic now that I was like not intending actually to bring up, but then I was like scrolling through your uh, LinkedIn and I found this post you liked from Rob, and I hope I pronounced his surname correctly, Leathern, I think. Yeah, in which he mentioned that uh, he and a number of people are thinking and talking about like safety, integrity, trust as it relates to the explosion of AI, um, and you you like that post, so I was like, hmm. I, I do want to ask you this question. It, it's the talk of the town for now, you know, and I have my concerns and thoughts about it. But what I would love to hear is your thoughts about this and, you know, as much or as little as you as you'd like. Well, so um, I, I don't know if you saw the, the Laura weights that were leaked. No. Uh, for a long oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. So, yeah. So, um. I um I I admit I'm I haven't and I I'm still not very worried about AI you know killing us all or whatever people are worried about um I I worry more about the fitness for purpose right so I I I adore honestly the ChatGPTs the large language models they're they're fun um but they're not what I consider to be the great opportunity that other people seem to, you know, uh, they're really great for training and for getting you started. Like you say, Hey, how do I do this in Python? Or what's the order one time of adding a thing to an array list? You know, that kind of, 
right? It, they're actually really good at that. And that's, that's actually kind of great. It's like having your own little pair programmer helping you out. Um, and so I think from that perspective, it's just unalloyed good, right? Um, there's a real problem. Well, I'll get to that in a second. Where, where AI, where these, these, these neural networks are remarkable and just, I think is amazing is when you plug them into um, industrial processes um, where you can say, oh, you know, it looks like you're, so uh, there's one that's been tested, I think, over at Autodesk, where what it is is for machining small parts, you basically, uh, they can analyze your design and tell you how manufacturable it will be. If you've got a hinge that's impinging on another piece of metals uh, place or it'll be unbuildable for some reason. So they have all of these diagrams over the decades and they can learn from them and tell you if you're about to do something a little wonky, you know? Um, and when you think about chemical processes in industry and in agriculture, there's a lot of opportunity for AI to um, help people do a better job. And, and, Act as almost like a uh, uh, an experienced old hand who's like, "Oh, you're about to do this thing. You mm -hmm. shouldn't do that, or you should do it this way." And the reason is is because X, Y, and Z. Um, where it's where there, are, I think, legitimate concerns is when people use these systems, statistical regression, artificial intelligence, neural networks frankly, search and replace. And they basically use it as a way of hiding bad behavior, right? So there's a concept in America called redlining, right? And what it is, is um, uh, it was if you're a black person uh, coming from a black neighborhood and looking for a loan, you wouldn't get one mm -hmm. because, well, you know, you're just over the red line. You know, you're in the wrong neighborhood. We, anytime we loan money to people in that neighborhood, they don't pay it back. So we're not going to give you a loan, right? So it was basically racism instantiated as credit checks or as uh, credit fitness based yeah. on location and other, you know, other financial factors. It's not yeah. about race. Yeah. And of course it was about race. And it was, you know, there was really sexist and, and racist things that America would do. And then they'd, oh, no, 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 we're, we're blaming the model. It's not, it's not you. It's not your gender. It's not your race. It's, uh, it's the model. Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. Computer says no. Um, and, and so, you know, as a country, we passed a lot of laws that said, no, 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 it doesn't matter if it's your model that's racist. It's still racist. So don't do that. Right. And so we tried to, you know, refine the analysis out of the system. And honestly, a lot of the AI systems, they can operate on bad data and trend towards past performance as an indicator for what they should be doing. So that that's where I worry about it most is it's, it's, it's how people basically um, do pretty terrible things and try to think that's not their fault. Or try to mm, pretend it's mm, not there, mm. right? Um, you know, uh, there's an insurance company. I'm not going to say their name in, in the United States, but um, they decided uh, as a financial exercise to deny half of all claims coming into the company to see who calls, 
to see who complains. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so uh, they literally just canceled half the claims coming in. And then they, uh, and, and if you, and if you called in and said, Hey, why'd you deny this claim? Oh no, no, we can take care mm. of it. And, and it was like, what are you doing? You know, I mean, disrupting all these people's lives and, and time and frankly spending more on customer service, um, just to see who's, who's got the stubbornness to see the claim mm-hmm. through. I mean, that's yeah. pretty bad. Yeah. Right. This was back, by the way, this was back in the eighties. So this was a long time ago. Um, and so what I see a lot of people doing with their, uh, you know, uh, call in, uh, you know, call into a insurance company, call into a pharmacy, call into a anything. And you've got that phone tree yeah. and they're being designed more and more to make them completely impenetrable when you have a real yeah. concern or like with the yeah. airlines. Right. So it's like when I see people saying, oh, you know, AI is going to solve the problem. And it's like, what's the problem you're solving here? How to better rip people off? How to, you know, it's like, yeah. So when I think about AI, I think about computers at all. I'm thinking like, how do you, are you using them to keep people away from Mm you? Or are you using them to serve people better? You know, and turns out I'm not always... Mm, mm, mm. Maybe expect too much from people, but it's like when you use a computer right to help serve people, serve your users, serve your customer. You know, it's like it's really mm. rewarding, and and there's a huge opportunity to to do an even better job of that with AI. Yeah, you know, but yeah, I mostly liked it because I like Rob. He and I were laid off together. We're laid off, <laughs> you know. And he's just—he's always been nice. So I was like, ah, well, I like it. And it was funny because that was during my sabbatical. I've been—I've been really reticent to like things during mm-hmm. my sabbatical. So if I—if I liked on Twitter, that was me breaking my. Um, oh, oh, oh this is on LinkedIn. This is on LinkedIn. Oh, okay. Well, that's good. <laughs> that might have might have been one of the things yeah, that triggered no, the unusual activity. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> Why are you like that? You know. But yeah, it was like one AI being upset about another AI. I don't know. honestly it's been so exciting i just installed gpt for all Mm -hmm. uh i don't know if you've Mm -hmm. seen this project um it's basically it's the llama python bindings and you can bring in the weights from all these from hugging face and from the other places and it's really Mm -hmm. fun you know i have a super good time with it but i'll be honest with you a lot of the stuff that people do in the large language models i don't care i mean i don't you know, I don't, I don't feel threatened in the slightest, you know, because I mean, I don't, I know that this is going to make me sound like an old man. I don't think that AI bots matter. I don't want to interact with a computer via a mm. bot. Give me a stupid menu. Give me something to click on or hit one or two or three. I mean, come on, really? <laughs> you know, it's like, I think about like the, in the game, you know, it's like, uh, you know, when you go into that first loading screen, do you want to talk to the loading screen? <laughs> no, just load the damn program. Yeah. You know, it's like, I don't need this, uh-huh, uh-huh. you know, but yeah, I don't know. Maybe I'm just an old man. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, that's good to hear that your yeah. perspective on this. But they're yeah. fun. Like, like um, I, I installed GPT for all and I asked it to write a story about a princess who finds a kitten under her 
bed and then but the kitten's afraid of an invisible monster that they then team up to defeat the invisible monster together and i wrote a story that was actually pretty mm -hmm, fun mm -hmm. you know even though she picked put poster pictures of the kitten on instagram <laughs> as part of the story but i was like yeah, right. okay sure yeah, very yeah, modern yeah. you know but yeah it was it was cute it's a, and that kind of thing is actually yeah. really fun you know who doesn't like it, yeah right but i don't see it as yeah i think i think and honestly, the way the way you can just ask it, hey, give me a Python program that does, uh, you know, an, an order mm -hmm. list or something, and it gives you something that's ninety percent of the way there. You're like, oh, this is mm. really cool. This is really mm -hmm. neat. Mm -hmm. You know, once you get a little more complicated, it gets a little, a lot more correction yeah, needs yeah, to yeah. go into it. But it's it's a super great start. Yeah. You know. Yeah, okay. I, I think some of the the concern or fear is just how some people are positioning it. You know, I mean, every every yeah. third or fourth thing you see is how so many developers are going to lose their jobs and, like, there's no more place for junior developers because these things are just going to, like, do all that and, you know, there will be no need for them. Um, and there's so much of that yeah. going around, you know, that people start asking the question, like, should I be worried? <laughs> and then they don't know who to speak to to get, to get a, a true answer. Yeah, and um, and if I were a junior developer right now, I wouldn't actually be worried. I'd be trying to learn as much as I could from and with these tools, because I have to be honest with you, there are some corners of computer science that are so impenetrable. Like there's what's documented and what's written and what's coded, and it's just like is it's like no one's talking to each other, you know. So, in some ways, I see it as a as a huge boon. Like, so I've always learned by example and by samples, and like, sa like sample code goes one. This is why I love open source. I can just look at the damn code, right? Um, if if these tools only exist to show you how to do something that you want to do, and then you have to refine it and make it actually useful, um, I I see it as a huge boon for junior developers, senior developers, all of them, right? Um, I think that there, there's a real question around autonomous cars and the rest. Like, what does that do for the drivers? What does it mean for these people? It's kind of like with electric cars. You, you need less mechanics, right? Yeah, um, yeah. What does that mean for their jobs yeah, and their lives, yeah. though, you know? And so, I mean, these are real questions. But I'm actually not worried about being replaced by a chat gpt for programming um and maybe maybe i'm just too myopic but when i look at the where they're and they're, they're advancing very very quickly right uh, but the ability of uh, there's such a hunger for people who can make computers do things right um at all levels that having extra capacity because of a helper application like copilot or or chat gpt or gpt for all um i'm just honestly i'm relieved as a society no seriously like getting people to program it's expensive it's hard to do um it's not very efficient and so anything that can make that better more capacity building that's really good you know, 
So there's always a worry that as something becomes more common, though, it becomes cheaper, and then the pay is a little lower. It's like, yeah, well, I mean, it's still supply and demand, but I don't really see that happening for a while yet. But that's maybe again, maybe it's just I have a rosy. Yeah, no, but I, 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 I appreciate that because I, I think there's too much negativity. You know, also. people have been saying that about open source since the beginning. By the way, open source is just going to take money out of the pocket of hardworking developers, and it's like, yeah, absolutely, because we don't want to be redoing things for the rest of our lives. When we, when we, so when we bought the Android startup. It was five people, Brian Swetla and, and some other folks, and um, I remember talking to them, and I was like. So uh, open source cell phone operating system. They're like, yeah. I was like, what's your motivation for that? And they're like, I don't want to write another damn cell phone operating system. Because <laughs> like they, they, they're the guys. So they started off at General Magic, uh, which was like an Apple adjacent thing. So some of them were at Apple. Then they went to General Magic. And, they, and then they did Danger, which did the hip top sidekick. Um, and then they went to, uh, they started Android and Android at first was going to be a camera operating system. And then it was a cell phone operating system. And, um, and they're like, yeah, no, it's going to be open source. And it's like, what's your motivation? They're like, we're so tired of writing these damn things. You know, we want to, we want to write it one more time. I'm like, cool. I'm on board. Let's do it. You know? Um, and it was funny cause the intent system, uh, in, in Android, it's very much like the one that was yeah. in danger. Right. And it's like there's little little there's little threads that go through yeah, all these yeah, things. Yeah. And it's kind of like WebOS. I don't know if yeah, you know yeah. WebOS is, but that's basically uh yeah, anyway. It's, yeah, like, and a boot to get code, the thing that Mozilla did. Yeah. Yeah. I mean it's it's all connected. And that's good because you know, it, it, you, you, when when you're gonna go do some math, you know, you, you don't have to rediscover the mid you know, you don't have to rediscover how to add, subtract, multiply, mm -hmm. divide, and find the, you know, you know, the area of a circle. You just, oh yeah, that's the equation. I'm just gonna plug it in. You know, it's like, you know, you're not calling up, you know, Descartes' family and saying, I think I owe you ten cents because I, I, I put something on a grid. You know, it's like, you know what? It's okay for sciences to advance, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? And I see this as fundamental mm -hmm. with that, right? It, it, it'll make more computer mm -hmm. scientists. It'll make computers more useful for more people. And I think that's great. I love computers. Yeah, <laughs> I can tell. Um, so on a more like positive, but even though you've just put a positive spin on this, which I love, um, uh, you were or are still involved with Science Food Camp, which in some ways reminds me of the Mozilla Festival. Um, I love this idea of bringing people of different fields together to like experiment, share ideas, brainstorm, and just be human, creative human beings. Um, I'd love to know if there's like any like stories from Science View Camp that, that you can share. Well, it's funny because the Mozilla Festival was actually started by Kay Taney. Kay T-H-A-N-E-Y. Kay used to work for uh, her digital science, which was part of nature. Now, nature slash digital science, Google and O'Reilly we came together to do SciFu Camp, right? And so SciFu Camp was basically based on the Fu Camp model, where you bring a bunch of people together and say, "Okay, start talking." You know, there's no set agenda. You just have a bunch of conference rooms and, and the ability to do it, and then lots of food, you know, and and free hotel rooms and stuff, you know. And so, um, yeah, we started uh, first SciFu was 2005, 
um, Tim O'Reilly and uh, the then head of Nature Digital Publishing, a fellow by the name of Timo Hane, uh, email Larry Page. Said, Larry, you should run a science food camp, you know? And, uh, and Larry said, yeah, Chris will do it. I'm like, okay. So I set it up and uh, worked with the folks from Nature and O'Reilly, and O'Reilly brought the O'Reilly-ness and, and the organization around it, um, you know, and they were great. And then Sarah Wing, you know, who was also the person who was helping run the food camp at the time with Tim. Um, that started in 2002, I want to say. And, um, yeah, we, you know, I was... <sighs> It was my budget. It was my people. We ran it on the campus at Google. And, but my real goal was to identify scientists who were either on the cusp of, of that, that huge discovery. They're extremely talented, you know, you know, postdocs and, and doctoral students and principal investigators and, and a little bit of science communicators, a little bit of science fiction, um, authors and then um yeah and we usually had two or three Nobel prize winners um and and it was it was one of those things where um people would especially the first year <laughs> they'd be like what is this nonsense oh okay i guess if google's gonna pay for it all right yeah. you know but they didn't know why they were coming until they got in the room and then we had this intro session and they're like oh it's that person who wrote that paper or, you know, and it, and it's not somebody in their field. So we would have high energy physics. We would have genetics. We would have what would become synthetic biology. We would have all these people and they'd be like, oh, yeah, you know, and they realized they were amongst peers, people who were as engaged in their field as they were in theirs. Right. And um, and they were able to learn from each other some of the tactics uh, inherent in their science. And so what we got out of it, you know, what Google got out. So there were no computer scientists except for the Googlers, right? Um, and and so, and then that was intentional because, you know, we, we talk about computer science all the time at Google, right? And you know, and and so we would be able to learn from these people. We uh, we would spin up a number of efforts. They would also do papers together. They would spin up other efforts. Um, yeah, it was just, it was a really great friction of, of just, you know, thoughtful, smart people. And I made some great friends, Tamar Macon, um, you know, her work on brain plasticity. It's like, it's, a, you know, I can, just, I can tell you like these people that they're, they're literally changing the world. Right. Um, and it's, it's just remarkable, you know, um, and, you know, and I could talk about, oh, these companies came out of it. This this guy won the Nobel after we discovered him, you know, or, you know, you know, our, our involvement with the Broad and, and the whole synthetic biology thing and CRISPR, blah, blah, blah. But it, it was about getting people together so that they could be exposed to that which they're not exposed to normally, mm -hmm. right? Because, you know, if, you, if, you're, if you're a chemist, you've seen other chemists, for God's sakes. That's your whole life, you know, but you, you don't get to talk to you know, uh, George Church, you don't get to talk to, you know, Martin Rees, you know, you know, these, these, these giants in synthetic biology and, and astronomy, you know, it's like, you know, and, and you can learn so much and they're going to learn from you yeah. too, which is kind of the best mm -hmm, part, mm -hmm. 
You know, we had Doris Taylor out. Oh my God, I'll never forget this. Doris Taylor, she's at um, University of Texas, I think, in, 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 in Texas there. And what she, what she had figured out how to do, it's a little gross, so if you're, you know, I don't know if you're, you know. Um, she could take a heart from a, from a mule, decellularize it, meaning remove all the genetic material from it, take the induced pluripotent stem cells from the animal that's going to receive the heart, recellularize the, the muscular structure of the heart with the target organism's own DNA and blood, put that heart into that target animal, and it would be fine. No rejection, no rejection medication. Literally, it was just swapping a part out. Wow. And, and I had never seen yeah. it before. And she brought demonstrations. <laughs> she brought a heart that she had discovered. <laughs> and it was the coolest damn thing I ever saw. And so I was standing there, and Neil Stevenson was at this one, and the, the author, the science fiction author. And just like, we're like, holy crap. You know, we just couldn't believe it. You know, it was just the neatest thing ever. And she's like, yeah, it, the biggest problem is finding the money to do the uh, the stem yeah. cell generation from the target animal because it costs like 50 grand per animal to generate yeah, that okay. much stem cell uh, from the from the donor animal. But it's like, I'm like, why aren't people doing this right now? You know, I'll take a mule heart, sure. You know, if like my mind's going bad, I'll, I'd gladly take <laughs> yeah. one. Are you kidding? You know, but yeah, it's like, yeah, like the, the stuff you got to see was just, it, and, and it gives you a lot of really good oh, ideas, yeah. you know, on how to, yeah. you know, it's like, yeah. Like, I mean, how is this any different? So like all the lower weights that are, that are floating around the internet right now, like the leaked one and, and the, the other ones, it's like you know, hugging face. I see it as like, you know what they're doing? They're decelerizing mm. this data set and then they're moving it over here to be reanimated in this, in this uh, yeah. neural network. It's like, eh, it's a terrible analogy, but you know, it's like, oh, this is really cool. You know, you get, you get a lot of really mm, good ideas mm, mm. from being exposed to these passionate, you know, niche, mm -hmm. little niche, little niche, uh, people in the sciences. Mm. It's like, it's just, yeah, like, yeah, you know, yeah. So, yeah. So yeah, it's, so Saifu, uh, the Mozilla festival, uh, what they've been doing there and, yeah, it's like we're all sort of like mm -hmm. cousins of, of the same desire, which is to celebrate, celebrate the nerds, <laughs> man. Get get us out out there and talking to other people so that they understand what you know. This kind of thinking can change yeah, the world yeah, if you just yeah. come to understand it just yeah, a little bit, yeah, right? Yeah, for so, sure, for sure. Yeah. And I think this plays into the next one really nicely. Um, we talked about open source can play like a critical role in so many aspects um, of people like young and older individuals um so in another area that i was thinking is like education um and like while there's no boundaries to the field of education right um just want to focus on tech for a moment um are there any open source projects nonprofits, like initiatives or anything like that in this space that you are aware of like using open source in for educational purposes that you like particularly excited about. I mean, I'm, I I guess one of them is like Khan Academy and the stuff that they're doing, but are there like other initiatives like that that you're excited about? Well, it, it's funny because there's uh, the Khan Lab School um, that is actually doing remarkable stuff. 
um, that they're going to start talking about, I think, in the next couple of months. That I just, it, it blows my mind how remarkable it is. Um, so, yeah, so the uh, the advances of education, there, there's a couple things that I would highlight. One would be the Khan Academy stuff, obviously. I mean, just his use of YouTube is remarkable, but what they're doing in the, in the, in the Khan Lab School is, it's just, it's just next generation. Because one of the biggest problems, honestly, in teaching is finding teachers. And this is the thing about the Summer of Code. I, I love the Summer of Code, but it is absolutely limited in how many people it can affect because it's a one-to-one mentor-student relationship. It's why it's so damn effective. Yeah. But, you know, you know, we've trained 14,000 students in the last 18, 19 uh, years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like, and, uh, no, it's got to be more than that now. But yeah, so it's about 1,000 students a, a year uh, who take part. And, um, but it is limited by the teachers, right? So if anything you can do to make it easier to teach in an effective manner because the student teacher ratio is the only one we know Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that is directly affects the quality of instruction. Right. So if you can make it a more, you know, direct relationship between the teacher and the student, you can affect education dramatically. Problem is, of course, there's not that many teachers. And, and when you get into the, some of the more niche, specialties, the number of teachers falls to the floor. And this is really true in computer science, especially true in in graduate instruction and the rest. It's like it's really hard to find people who are both mm. good at teaching and who want to do it and um, and want to be fairly compensated. Because the other yeah. side of it is software development mm-hmm. is pretty good, mm-hmm. right? So it's really hard to say, okay, you know, maybe you do this, but then this. You know, and there's very few people who have mastered doing both, like the Andrew Moores of the world, who are just titans of education, but also incredible software developers yeah, and leaders. Yeah. Um, where was I going with that? I was going somewhere. But um, yeah, so there's learning management systems, Pencil. Uh, is Pencil in his name? Uh, there's, um, yeah, yeah. It's just it's a it's a it's a funny old world, and that's it's an area that's still extremely analog, mm. extremely mm, personal. Mm. And there was a, a, an effort called the Alt School, um, and I don't think it did very well because it was kind of experimenting on new educational tactics with mm. children. And you know, it's one of those things where if you assume a homogene, homogeneity of mm. students you're never going to be successful because every kid needs a different, you know, tweaking and adjustment Mm -hmm. and and all the rest. Like I, I, when I was much younger, I think I had a speech therapist because I had a, it was a little lisp or something. Um, and it's like, um, and I was great at math and science and history and, but I was never good at certain other things. And so I would try to do more of that. I was a terrible student, (laughs) by the way. You know, so um, it took me years until I became a legitimate scholar. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's one of those areas where it's like you shouldn't be experimenting. On yeah, it. No. you know, so it's really hard to advance something where your rule is: how about you don't break mm-hmm. a kid? You know, that would mm. be bad. Wouldn't yeah, that be bad? Yeah. You know, and this is why Khan Academy. It's like for all the talk about Khan 
putting stuff on YouTube and all the rest. Remember, it started because he wanted to teach his, mm-hmm. his nephew, mm-hmm. right? Or his cousin, his young cousin. And it's like, he's like, well, I'm just going to record things and you can watch them and, you know, if it works for you. And that worked for that kid, right? And it worked for mm-hmm. a lot of kids to have somebody who was just willing to explain something, you know, sport. Yeah. And it's like that he's been able to stay relevant for so many. It shouldn't work, mm. right? Knowing what I know about teaching mm. kids shouldn't work, but it totally yeah. works because Saul Khan is special. He really understands it. He's really driven to help as many people as possible master the very basic through the pretty complex subjects yeah. out there, yeah. right? So it's kind of amazing. And like, um, gosh, oh, uh, Patricia Fox? What was her name? I can't remember. Um, she went to go work for 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 Sal Khan, and she's honestly one of the best front end developers I've ever met. And she's she did great work helping get the the exercises and the systems that that mm-hmm. worked on mm-hmm. out there. Um, so yeah, so so I think that not talking about Sal Khan is missing yeah. the point, I guess, <laughs> because. He's one of the few people who's figured out this thing that shouldn't work. It's like Wikipedia. Wikipedia shouldn't work, but it totally works, you know? And it works because of the people who put the time into it to keep it mm, working. Mm, mm. And, um, yeah, there's a lot of things that just shouldn't work, but they work great. People, someone found yeah, that corner, yeah, yeah. you know? And that's really special. Oh, it's exciting to hear about this stuff. But I'd ask you, what's working for you, you know? Like what? What works from your perspective that shouldn't work and that we should emulate? You know, this is why open source open source shouldn't work. It's ridiculous, <laughs> but it works because of the people involved. They 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 like oh yeah, like like when we when we took the Linux kernel from the proto days, you know, before BitKeep over four version control to the modern day, there were some decisions made. I'm like. Why does it work? Mm-hmm. You know, when other operating systems they just they're gone. You know, so yeah, it's it's a, it's a there's a lot mm. to learn. Yeah, no, for there, sure. You know, so. and I think this this fact that that all these stories kept cycling back to it's about the people involved. I think that strengthens your mm-hmm. argument about the fact that these ChatGPT and all these things are not going to replace it'll enhance instead of replace because all these things cycle back to the people. If it's not for the people, this thing that shouldn't work probably wouldn't work if it wasn't for the people. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. Huh. Talking about Linux, um, there's so many flavors of Linux and you recently became a board member of Rocky Linux, which calls itself Enterprise Linux, the community way. Yeah. Why Rocky Linux? What yes. what is it about Rocky Linux? Um, so uh, I've been involved in Linux since the mid '90s, like we talked about. Um, I've always loved just everything about it—the distributions, the way the distributions do their work, and all the rest. Um, for me, it's not—it's not Rocky Linux, the enterprise Linux. You know, enterprise. I've been involved in enterprise forever. It's—it's right? um, it's more Gregory Kurtzner. And um, and and the team there, you know, um, I just think they're really their hearts in the right place. You know, they're trying to create a a really dependable 
LTS Linux that's really useful for its users. And it's like, we, we had a board meeting, and one of the things we've been talking about are single board computers, you know, your Raspberry Pis, your, you know, the rest, and, and how Rocky performs on them. And I'm like, you know, if they were truly just like a greedy collection of enterprise software salespeople, we wouldn't be talking about yeah. these things at all. And I'm like, what they are is they're like, people want to run Rocky, which is this reliable target for applications, right? They want to run it everywhere, right? Because they want that reliability, that predictability of interface, right? And that's what makes it an enterprise operating system, right? And in some ways, you know, CentOS, which Gregory was involved in before, uh, CentOS was that for people who didn't want to go the Red Hat, you know, and pay 12 bucks per CPU or whatever. And so... Um, they're using CentOS, and then as CentOS was absorbed by Red Hat, um, and then they stopped releasing the point releases of CentOS because it was threatening their enterprise Linux business. That's why they did it, right? And so the result of that was Alma and Rocky. And, and Rocky, they just have a great attitude, great perspective on what it means to maintain an operating system in service to its users. And so that's why, you know, when they asked me to get involved, I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm in because their heart's in the right place. They're doing it for the right reasons. They're not doing it to hurt anybody. They're not doing it to hurt Red Hat or anything like that. They're doing it to have their Linux just be really good at serving its users. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. And so that's, that's pretty rare. You know, there's a lot of people who are in open source, but they're really doing it to try to trick people into some service model or, you know, I'm like, you know, I got involved in open source back in the 90s because I didn't have to ask anyone. You know, I didn't have to go to a salesperson. I didn't have to, you know, if I wanted to figure out what was going on inside the code, I could just look. You know, it was, I was very independent, I know, and, uh, and, and maybe misanthropic, but it was, it was refreshing to not have a bunch of gatekeepers keeping you from doing things. And that's, the attitude of Rocky is the same. They're like, we want to, we want to really serve our users. We want to know who they are. We want to make sure they're getting what they need out of this. And yeah, and that's refreshing and wonderful. And that's why it's fun. Wow, all great reasons. And again, cycling back to the people. <laughs> people yeah. is always the center of all this. <clears throat> this has been amazing. Um, I have. Two things that's not software related. Well, the one is kind of, but <clears throat> so don't know how many people know. I had no idea about this, um, but you were involved with the TV show Silicon Valley and Good Omens. Very different shows, but entertaining yeah, and, in their own and ways. Dev, and dev. Um, Alex Garland had a had a TV series, a limited run called uh, Devs. Oh. That was that was probably more more satisfying. Of the, I haven't even heard about Devs. Okay, huh. It, it, it didn't do super well. I mean, not not people saw it, but it was, it was, it was, it was more think. You know, Alex Garland he did um, uh, Ex Machina and he oh, did some, okay. of, some of these other movies, uh, and so he wanted to do a TV series, and it was about, um, it was about, it was about a lot of stuff, and it was mm -hmm. really good. So I, I would recommend watching that nice. one too. Yeah, no. Uh, what's your question? Just about like, what was the experience like? of being involved in something so different to, you know, open source or yeah. any of these other things. 
<laughs> so um, what had happened was, uh, so I was involved with Silicon Valley for seasons two through five or six, whatever it ended. And uh, they'd come out to Google uh, before season one to sort of scout out, to do some B-roll and, and that kind of thing. And they were given, uh, you know, a, they had a meeting with these people from from Google, but it wasn't with any of the engineers, any of the scruffy gray beards like me, right? And so they left and they're like, oh, that was weird. You know, the only thing they got that was really very Google is they got a tour by Matt Cutts, who was uh, in, in charge of search quality uh, at the time. And Matt's a, a legendary figure in search. And so I was like, oh, at least I got to talk to Matt. That's cool. I was out of town. I was skiing. And um, so uh, they did season one, and it was great, of course. And then uh, they came back uh, to Google, and they talked to my friend uh, Karen Wickery at Twitter. And they're like, yeah, we went to Google, but it was weird last year. And she's like, who did you talk to? And they told her, and she's like, yeah, don't talk to those people. Talk to Here, just contact Chris. And I'm like, so I got this email out of the blue from John Doton, the uh, producer there. And he's like, hey, um, Karen said we should talk to you. And I was like, yeah, sure. OK, well, meet me at this uh, pub in Mountain View. I'm gonna, I'll invite some some of the old Unix nerds, you know, so you can meet the, you know, the real parts of Silicon Valley. And um, so I invited uh, <laughs> this guy who used to run one of the root servers uh, for the Internet. Uh, so when you would you know, do DNS resolution, he had one of the seven machines in his, in his garage. <laughs> you know? And I had the other guy who uh, provides the the he's he's the endpoint for the fiber in all of Palo Alto and parts of Mountain View. Um, I had some like Jeremy Allison. I think I invited him. He's the guy in charge of Samba. Just a bunch of nerds, you know, from my lug days and and all the rest. And they're like. <laughs> they're like scribbling, scribbling. And um, and then I took them on a tour of my Silicon Valley, right? And so, because they're like, so, you know, the hacker house in the show. I'm like, yeah. And he's like, well, where, where is it in your mind? I'm like, huh? is it in Culver City or some nonsense? And they're like, yeah, but, but where would it be here? And I'm like, oh, well, I'll show you. So I drove to this neighborhood in Palo Alto where they would have a house like that. And I was like, here's the thing about that house. You know, you guys want to install fiber and all the rest. You're going to have to talk to Joe and it's going to take months because the other neighbors are going to hate you. Right. And there was, cause there was a movement inside Palo Alto at the time called the residentialists. And they ended up bringing that into the show as the, the guy in the wheelchair who was upset with them all the time. <laughs> and like, you know, so there, there were all these like, like, like kind of Palo Alto jokes, you know, like, like these ridiculous neighbors. And, and we had a whole like storyline in Stanford with this uh, Richard Stallman avatar type person. But it turns out he had stolen money. Uh, code. It, it was too inside baseball that we didn't end up using it. Um, but like it was it was so much fun. And um, my my good friend and coworker uh, until recently uh dan berlin he uh he helped them with the entire intellectual property storyline in season two you know uh you know where their huli was accusing richard of stealing code because he was working at huli at the time when he came up with the idea for pied piper but he hadn't used his huli hardware but he did a little bit but you know how do we navigate this and and california law and all, all that stuff so it was it was a lot of fun and um and, and, you know, they, they were just a blast to work with. And, you know, I, uh, Mike Judge, he came down for, uh, it was one of the premieres where I went down to Los Angeles and, and he was just like, 
um, I saw a video of a man singing about free software. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's Richard. He's like, is he, is he okay? And I'm like, yeah, he's a little off. <laughs> he's actually he's an okay person. He's just, you know, a little unusual sometimes. He's like, yeah, I'm, I, I, I. <laughs> so Mike Judge, he, his prosody, I'm sorry, the way he speaks is just, it's, it's, it's very deliberate. You know, it's, 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 it's like, it's like, he's like, so, it's like he's not like any Hollywood person I've ever met before. They're all very glib and, and fancy, all that. But Mike Judge is just like he he wants to get to the root of the problem and not talk too much about it. You know, he's like, let's just get this done, this conversation. You know, and I'm like, oh, you'd be at home with any of these nerd friends of mine. Yeah. You know, um, but yeah, it was a really good time. Um, yeah, Silicon Valley was a blast to work on. Uh, I don't know if I answered. No, you totally did. And then Good Omens. Good Omens happened. So the thing about Good Omens is, um, uh, so growing up in Salt Lake City, uh, I, I was I was young. My parents, we moved to Salt Lake City. I was like nine. And uh, I moved away when I was 17. And, and I, I wasn't a Mormon kid. And so if you weren't a Mormon kid in the 80s in Salt Lake City, you knew every other not Mormon kid, right? And so um, one of the other not Mormon kids was Mike Dringenberg, who uh, did the art for Sandman uh, for the first 16 issues of Sandman. And so I got to know him and I got to know Neil Gaiman and we became pals. And so he contacted me. He's like, hey, I'm doing good omens and we need to do this thing. And uh, can you make that happen? I'm like, sure. Yeah. So that's all. The good omens connection was just me helping some back and forth. It was not a big deal, but it was Neil being very sweet to me. And, and he invited me to the premiere in Leicester square. And it was so cool. My sister and I went and said, my sister is my sister and I, we go to like the Hugo's, we go to the big nerd events and it's really special for us, you know? So, so yeah. So that's what yeah, we did. That's amazing. Yeah. I told my daughter about it. But yeah. Devs was, Devs was <clears> really I'll check cool. that out. Really cool. Yeah. And there's another show coming out, and I haven't gotten involved in production yet. But now that I'm fun employed, <laughs> I'm going up to Vancouver, and I'm going to visit a couple of sets there for my friend. We're going to see about maybe me helping out. But I don't yeah, 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 that's for sure. It's just yeah, it, it's fun to get the creative juices mm, flowing, mm, you know, because. You can get really stuck in I, I'm pretty niche. I'm like, hey, the world's authority on open source and developer ecosystems and platforms. And, you know, it's like, yeah, it's you know, that's a very small, you know. I'm the I'm the I'm the most effective, you know, brown eyed, right handed, you know, fifty two year old. You know, it's, it's just like, you know, you you get more and more specialized to the point where eh, who cares, you know? So, you know, having other outlets is really mm -hmm. important mm -hmm. uh, you know a uh, good 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 brain health yeah you know yeah for sure that and i mean yeah. that that's why i said like with the the science food camp in uh, mozilla festival i think it, it it's yeah. that it's it makes you think from a different perspective um like for example i i i was at the virtual MozFest this year and we there was this one talk that i joined i thought it was going to be a talk turns out to be, be a workshop and they were talking about uh the ethics of ar research and as part of that we were we broke out into these breakout rooms um via zoom and the idea was here's like a hypothetical uh proposal for a research study and like you a couple of folks read over this and then talk about what you think and that is something i've never done and it made me 
understand that process so much better and now i'm like super curious about that it's like is this how it works really okay <laughs> interesting so it's fascinating to be exposed to these other other areas you know that's tech related but it's different enough that it makes you think yeah. and then you bring that back to coding or whatever it is that you do and it makes you approach the the problem or whatever from a different perspective because you now thought about this differently so it makes a lot of sense like i mean that's really cool stuff to be able to get involved with you know but um yeah no i've i've been extremely fortunate i've been so privileged honestly it's like yeah it's been a good yeah good time. so one last question and it's it's a really silly one and it's something i saw on your website so i thought i'd just end off with that so you said you, you <laughs> I've got website, so, <laughs> so you have this thing that that's a question mm -hmm. and so do you have the answer to that to the question you pose which is where do i put my study content um so that's actually on google sites so yeah, yeah. Gives you an idea of how crusty it is um and uh, the answer is kind of no. So I'm actually not, I, I've done a bit of writing since I was laid off. And, um, you know, I've created this new consulting company and I, I haven't even put up a website. <laughs> and I'm like, I think I might use Hugo. I might, you know, do this. Or maybe I'll just do squares, but I don't know. I mean, I'm just like, you know, back before Google, I, you know, I would run Apache and I'd have, you know, I just install the blogging software of the day or whatever and just keep it up to date. Um, and that's probably what I'll be doing this time too. But like, yeah, maybe I should try some of the new ways of doing things. Maybe I'll use Hugo. You know, I don't know what I want. So that's why that website hasn't mm -hmm. changed in years. Even though I got fired. I'm sorry, laid off, mm -hmm. laid off on Google. And, um, you know, I'm like, okay, I got to change that. At least I shouldn't say that I work. You know, that's pretty. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, I, I don't have a good answer for that. You know, the thing here, here, I have a good anti-answer. You know what you mm -hmm. don't do? You don't stand up 19,000 computers to serve yes. a blog. You know, like when I was looking at, so Craigslist famously is an extremely efficient mm -hmm. website. Right, not just because it's simple HTML, but like the back ends, it doesn't have a lot mm -hmm. of machines. Because what would they need a lot of machines for? Right? It's like, and I think about my days at Slashdot, and we were running on like Pentium 2, 233s, you know, and we were hosting an enormous number of, of amount mm -hmm. of traffic on like nine machines. Wow. And I'm like, do you know how much power is in a modern computer? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's ridiculous. I mean, as, absolutely ridiculous and so i'm like so i know what i'm not gonna do i'm not gonna stand up 14 computers and a kubernetes cluster and all this nonsense to host a mm -hmm, blog mm -hmm. you know and and then i say i'll just put let's leave it on site so you know whatever you know it's fine but it's just like i see people doing things i'm like what do you need all those computers for <laughs> yeah you know yeah. Like, it's just mm -hmm, ridiculous mm -hmm. you know but yeah maybe that's how i'm just not i don't understand the future you know it was funny i, I was running gpt for all and it was a little sluggish because the way it's built uh in ships on mm -hmm. github the pre-built one is optimized just for cpu use it's not it doesn't okay. use gpus at all and so i'm like oh i gotta i gotta enable that feature because it feels sluggish mm -hmm. to me and i'm like i'm like 
you, I'm, and that's why I brought up the performance monitor. I was using maybe 20% of the CPU. And I'm like, what is wrong with you, dude? This is, this is no big deal. This, you're fine. <laughs> but I'm just like, how, how, how privileged we've become. You know, I've got a, I've got a, how many threads does this thing have right here? It's like a 13th generation Intel. It's like 32 threads. Yeah. Like twenty four, like like eight high performance threads that are hyper threaded to sixteen, and then there's eight uh, efficiency thread, you know, cores. I'm like, this is ridiculous. Like when we were when we were deploying uh, at Google, we were deploying Piper, sorry, uh, mm-hmm. Perforce, right, for internal development, and um, we were having real problem scaling, and so uh, this was <laughs> this was two thousand four. And I was like, why don't you just stick it on a, on a Sunfire and just buy your way out of the problem? They're like, oh, no, no, Perforce won't run, uh, won't use as many c- CPU cores on a, on, a, on a Sun machine as it will on an Intel machine. I'm like, really? They're like, yeah. I'm like, okay. So we were like constantly buying like the fattest computer possible for Perforce servers. But yeah, it's like, I think like, man, if we could have run Perforce on a modern Epic. <laughs> You know, we we would never have ported a Piper, mm-hmm. you know, and, and we did there. So anyway, you don't need to hear me yammer about that. But, yeah. Kids today. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, Chris, this is absolutely amazing. Um, I can listen to you all all night, even though it's almost 1 a.m. Yeah, and I'll just keep talking. <laughs> yeah, that's what the hell do I do with this two-hour-long podcast? Nobody's going to listen. Oh no, I'm very sure they will. Yeah. I'm very sure they will. Wow, I, I would love if you could tell me if anyone actually listens to it. So, yeah, I've been doing a. We it was called Internet mm-hmm, Radio mm-hmm. back in the day. It's um uh we were doing it was called Geeks in Space and it was Rob Malda and anytime I'd come to town we would record one and put it up and so um about four years ago we restarted it and we just pretended as if we were doing it the whole time. <laughs> and we have like no one listening to us. It's a YouTube channel and it's like a podcast, but Rob doesn't care actually. So he, I don't even think he talks about it much. And so we've got a discord server. And so, yeah, I'd love to know if anyone actually listens. To this. I'm sure uh, I'll, I'll send <laughs> you the stats. <laughs> I, it's nothing personal against you. I, I know. How no, 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 it's not, you know, I'm not, I'm, not taking yeah, it personally at all. <laughs> I just enjoyed being able to have had this conversation. So thanks so much. Yeah, it was great. Talking and the, to yeah, thanks yeah. for everything you shared, and thanks for everything you've done, everything you will do, and just being an awesome wow, person. Yeah. I've I've been lucky to have generous com- companies as my employers too. So you know, proud of the yeah. work I did there. So what's next? Yeah, I'm looking forward to see what's right. next. Yeah. Thanks very much, Chris. Um, have a lovely rest of your day. Have a safe flight Thank tomorrow. You. And um, yeah, I'll let you know as soon as this goes live. Thank you for listening to the Mechanical Inc. podcast. Join the conversation on Discord. All the links are in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, please like and share it with your friends and colleagues. If you have a moment, please leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts, as this helps others find us and helps us make a better podcast for you our listeners.